Thank you for listening to this podcast and message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Luke chapter 3, back into Luke's Gospel this morning. Luke chapter 3. As you're finding that, we are now moving out of the birth narrative section of Luke's Gospel, first two chapters there. And we're moving into the extended extended section of Jesus' adult ministry. And just like the birth narrative begins with not the narrative of Jesus' birth, but it begins with the narrative of John's birth, so also the narrative of Jesus' adult ministry begins the same way, not with the story of Jesus entering into his adult ministry, but it begins with John's ministry. So parallels there. John is truly, Luke is painting a picture for us of John as truly the forerunner of Jesus, the one who goes before him. So we're going to look at the first nine verses this morning from verse 1, Luke chapter 3. Let's just read together uh, as we begin. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high, te- high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. First thing that sort of jumps off the page at at all of us is the historicity of the story that Luke is giving to us. By that I mean... He begins the story with with these seven political and religious figures that all of these are given as markers for when it was that John the Baptist's ministry began. And it's it's hard to ignore the fact of just how grounded that story is in actual, real history. More and more people seem to, to be of the thinking that the factual reliability of the Bible is... Something that doesn't matter. In other words, the Bible wasn't written and given to us in order to give us a real, reliable, true account of history. Because that wasn't the point. The point of Scripture is to teach us moral truths, is to teach us about God, is to teach us about salvation. And in order to do that, it uses stories that may or may not be told accurately, or may or may not even be true. Because that's not the point. The point is the moral truths that the Scriptures teach us. More and more you hear this sort of thing today. The reason I think that people go down that path is because if we begin to think of Scripture as a story, as a book that tells us moral truths that is designed to teach us of God and salvation and these things, but it may use stories that may or may not be accurate, 
When we go down that path, then that frees us from the necessity to believe in the miraculous aspects of Scripture, more, most specifically the extraordinary miraculous aspects of Scripture. If Scripture becomes a collection of stories that may or may not be true, but that's not the point. If that's what Scripture becomes, then we no longer have to believe in, in a man that was swallowed by a fish or or a day that the sun stood still in the sky and these sorts of things. And that alleviates us from that necessity. And we think that we're, ironically enough, when we go down that path, we often think that we're doing God a favor because He gave us this book and some parts of it are kind of problematic. And so let's do God a favor by teaching people that, well, it's not necessarily precise in what it says, but that's not the point. The point is the moral truths that it teaches us. So we think that we're, we're alleviating God of the embarrassment of giving us a book that parts of it are hard to believe. But in reality, when we go down that path, we're not doing God, of course, any favors. We are, in fact, undermining the very reliability, the, the truthfulness of the Scripture. Because once you go down that path, it's hard to determine where do you stop? How far do you go down that path? Sooner or later, you come to the point that was there even really a Jesus? Or is there really even any credulity that we can give to the things that, that are written in this word at all? There's no stopping point to that. And so that's a path that many people go down today thinking that they are serving Christ, but actually they're not. When the truth of the matter is that when we face passages like this, it's hard to even... Think in those terms. When, when Luke gives us seven political figures and seven religious figures that ground the story of John the baptizer into a specific point in history, then it's hard to even say, well, Luke didn't write this intending for us to believe that this was an actual thing that actually happened. Of course he did. How did he begin his gospel? He begins by saying, I have researched, chapter 1, verse 1, I have undertaken to compile a narrative of all these things. I've undertaken the task of compiling this and, and putting it in orderly fashion. Of course, he intends for us to read this as though these events actually occurred in an actual point in history. He gives us seven figures in which to ground the time period. It would be like me saying to us something like, uh, Jason began his public ministry at the time when George W. Bush was president and Dick Cheney was vice president and Condoleezza Rice was the secretary of state and Mike Easley was the governor of North Carolina. right? You hear those things and immediately you think, okay, I know the period of time that he's talking about. That, that grounds it into this period here. And the same thing that Luke is doing for us here. We hear these words. We, he, uh, we hear Pontius Pilate, who is governor of Judea, and history tells us that that was between the, the, the years of 26 A.D. and 38 A.D. We hear of the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And we put all these together and we say, okay, John's talking about 27 or 28 A.D. And that grounds it into that period of time there. So he speaks of these, uh, these leaders here. We could talk in detail about each one of them. Just to draw, kind of draw our attention to a couple of them, Pontius Pilate, we're going to, of course, encounter him again. In about three years, we're going to encounter also Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, in about three years as Jesus, not three years in our time, but three years in the narrative time, as Jesus is uh, undergoing trial. It might be three years. As, but as Jesus is undergoing trial and He's going to be executed, in about three years from this point, we'll encounter Ter Herod and Pontius Pilate once again. So now we're grounded in this time period. Verse 3, and he, uh, I'm sorry, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, when we read a phrase like that, the word of God came to John, then it makes me sit up and take note. Of course, all of Scripture is God's word to us. All of Scripture, as Paul says to Timothy, is breathed out by God, is, is given to us straight from, uh, from God himself. But when Scripture goes to the extent to say, and the Word of God came to John, and this is what it was. Or the Word of God came to Isaiah, and he spoke. Or the Word of God came to Jeremiah. Then that sort of gets me excited. That, that, 
that gets my attention pricked because now God has a specific message for a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. And that's just thrilling to hear how God has a specific thing to say at this moment. The Word of God came to John, and we're about to hear it. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So now we get this sort of precursor of what John's message is. He proclaims a message, and here's the message, a message of baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So we're familiar with that concept of, uh, of course, the forgiveness of sin. We're familiar with the concept of repentance. In fact, if we think back to chapter 1, we'll remember that the the words of the angel Gabriel, as Gabriel was telling Zechariah of who is to be born to Elizabeth, even before John was conceived, Gabriel tells Elizabeth that this is what the message of this person will be. From from chapter 1, we could see Verse 15, he'll be great before the Lord, etc. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just. So we see that, that word that's repeated there, to turn. He will turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So the concept of turning, we know that that is intricately linked with the concept of repentance. And that's that's the message that Gabriel gives to Zechariah. This will be your son's message. He will be sent out to not only go before the Messiah, but also to turn people's heart towards God to cause a turning of the thoughts and the affections and the desires of people to turn them from one thing to another. And we know that that is at the root of repentance. Repentance, oftentimes we hear that word repentance. I don't know what you think about when you hear the word repent or repentance. What do you think of? What sort of what image pops in your mind when you hear repent? Maybe a street preacher holding a sign, repent or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's a good illustration. They are throwing things at people here. Um, so that's sort of an image that pops in my mind about repentance or like the, the, the person standing on the street corner, repent for the end of the world is next Tuesday, something like that. And that's, of course, part of it, but it's only a small part. Like you were saying, the concept of repentance is, is linked with this concept of turning. But I think oftentimes that we uh, don't think well enough about the concept of repentance, because repentance involves not just uh, not just sort of this tearful time of of reconciliation, this tearful time of confession, but it also involves, um, like you said, a turning, a true turning from one thing to another. So I, I've got on the screen here just a, a couple of things to help us think well about re- what repentance truly is. Repentance, which is the message of John the baptizer. Repentance is not just an emotional thing that occurs in our hearts. And neither is it just a sort of a mental thing that occurs in our mind. And neither is it a turning and changing of direction only. It's all of those things together. Repentance is, it involves the emotions, it involves the mind, and it involves the volition or the will. We are broken in our emotions over our own sin because we realize with our mind the wrongfulness of our path and we then will or turn. We change directions. We change paths. It involves the emotions. It involves the mind. And it involves the will. I've got just four things that helps us think through this here. Number one, Repentance is, first of all, realizing the wrongness of one's path. Realizing the wrongness of one's path. Now, realizing the wrongness of one's path is not just realizing that one's path is going to take you to the place that you don't want to go. Oftentimes, we can realize that our path 
in life is taking us where we don't want to go, but that's not the same thing as realizing the wrongness of our path. We can realize that things just aren't going to go well for us. We can realize that um, that uh, where we're headed may end very badly, but that's still not the same thing as realizing that we are wrong, that we are on the wrong path. Repentance is realizing that not only is your path in life, your choices in life, not only are they resulting in bad things or will result in, a, in bad things in your life, but even if they didn't, you're still on the wrong path. You're still on the simple path. Oftentimes, we can associate changing path with simply wanting to change results. I don't want the result that this path is going to take me to, so I'm going to go on a different path. That's, a, that's not quite the same thing as realizing that my path in life is offensive to God, is sinful to God. So repentance, first of all, is realizing the wrongness of one's path in life. But secondly, forsaking the wrongness of that path. Forsaking that path. It is quite sometimes, I think, surprising to me to just be reminded of fallen humanity's propensity to stay on the wrong path, even after we've realized the wrongness of that path. Sometimes we think that, that repentance is just a matter of really understanding the wrongness of where you are in life, the, the wrong path that you're on, the wrong standing that you have with God. But oftentimes we can be fully aware of the wrongness of our path and yet not be willing to forsake it. I think oftentimes of um, when you think of repentance, it's hard to, to not use the analogy, which is a good one, but it's hard to not use the analogy of being on a path in life, of going somewhere, of traveling from one place to another and realizing that the path that you're on is not taking you where it is that you want to go, that you're on the wrong path. And I often think of, of just how I've treated those times in my life when I was going somewhere and realized that I was not taking the correct path. It's easy to lose sight of the fact of how new GPSs are. G GPS technology is, is fairly new technology, but the widely accessible GPS technology is very new. Ten years ago, there were GPSs in cars, but they were usually the really expensive cars that had it built in, and maybe you were paying for a monthly service to get the GPS service and that sort of thing. It's only within the past few years that the really inexpensive little GPS devices, everybody has them now. So this was before that time. This, this, this was the time of you would have directions sort of jotted down on a piece of paper and you were following those directions. And uh, as you probably know, just, you, you made a lot of wrong turns. And I remember so well, so many times, coming to the realization that I'm not on the right path, that I'm not on the right road. And what would often happen is um, I would realize that the, the road I'm on is the wrong road. And in my desire to not have to stop and turn around, because that was the worst thing ever. Stopping and turning around was the worst. Because not only were you admitting that you're wrong, but now you're backtracking on your wrong path. That was just terrible. So you realize that this is not the way I want it to go. And then in your mind you start thinking, well, I can go here and here and here and I can still get there. And the here and here and here was twice as long as stopping and turning around and getting back on the right. And I would still go. I would, I would, take, I would continue on what I knew to be the longer route because it was so unpleasant to just stop and turn around. Isn't that silly? But no, it's a fallen humanity. I mean, it may not be be so with uh, with driving directions, but that's a fallen humanity thing. That it it is so distasteful for us to stop, forsake the wrong path, and and not try to make our wrong path come around to the right path, but instead stopping it and turning it around. That is so hard for us to do. And so. We, sometimes we do everything we can 
to not forsake the wrong path and maybe just redeem our wrong path in some way. But repentance is not redeeming your wrong path. Repentance is forsaking your wrong path and turning back around to the right path. So secondly, it's forsaking the wrong path. But thirdly, it's also committing to the path of righteousness. If I realize that the road that I'm taking will eventually get me where I want to go, but it's going to take two hours instead of one. And I stop and say, well, okay, what if I can now I, I jump on this road and I can go there and still have to go back. And I get on another wrong path. I stop the one wrong path and choose another wrong path. Then that's still just as silly. That's still just as foolish. Repentance involves forsaking that wrong path, but also committing to, and number four, engaging the path of righteousness. All four of those things are part and parcel of repentance. Now we said earlier that repentance is a heart action. Your heart is broken emotionally over the wrongness of your path. It's a mental thing. You have realized in your thinking that this is sinful, this is wrong. But it's also an, a volitional thing. It's, it's turning and changing. But as we look at those four things there, clearly the bulk of what actually takes place are actions or, or forsaking of one path and committing to another path. So this is the message of John. The message of forgiveness of sins as evidenced by repentance. The repentance, the brokenness, the the uh, changing path, the engaging in the right path. This is the message of John, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, that's John's message. And we, I think if you have been in a church context for a big part of your life, like a lot of us have, then that's just sort of second nature to your thinking. Yes, I know John preached a message of repentance. His message was a was a message of repentance. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. And we sort of say, okay, and we go on. But let's slow down for just a moment and let's think about John's message of repentance, of specifically baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Let's think about his message to his listeners. His listeners would have been, of course, Jews, right? So... Think for a moment of what does baptism, what did baptism mean to the Jew of John's day? Well, let's think about it. Um, what, at this point in, in time, the Old Testament scriptures are what God's people have. So what does that teach about baptism? In the Old Testament, baptism is fill in the blank. Absent. Absent. Search the Old Testament high and low from Genesis to Malachi and you won't find the concept of baptism. You'll find cleansings. You'll find places like Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26 where God says, I'll sprinkle your heart clean. You'll find that. But you will not find the concept of baptism by immersion. But Jews practiced baptism like you alluded to. What it meant for the Jew of, of John's day was it was part of a process by which a proselyte became a Jew. You know what a proselyte is? A proselyte is someone who follows a different faith that changes and follows your faith. Or maybe they don't follow any faith at all, but then they, they follow your faith. So that's a proselyte. So when a Gentile became a God follower, a God fearer, one of God's people, then there were three things that the Gentile had to do. They had to be circumcised, they had to offer sacrifice, and they had to be baptized. That was, that was the teaching of the rabbis of that day. It was a rabbinical teaching. It wasn't part of Old Testament Scripture. Not to say it was unbiblical, but it was, it was not part of Scripture. It was something that the rabbis taught must happen. When a Gentile becomes a person of God's chosen people, they must, among other things, be baptized. So, think for just a moment of what John's message means 
to the people hearing it. What? We shouldn't have to be cleansed. Yeah. Baptized? No, no, no. We're Jews. Um, we don't need to be baptized. We are Jews. We are God's chosen people. What do you? We have to be baptized? See the connection between baptism, because we think of New Testament baptism. What an offensive message to John's audience. John was in effect telling the Jewish people, you must repent and be baptized to become a Jew. You must repent, be forgiven of your sins, and be baptized, and then you can be one of God's chosen people. How offensive to the Jewish people of, of John's day. Which is why we see later on, John is saying part in part of his message, don't tell me that you're, you're Abraham's children. Don't tell me that you've got Abraham as your father. God can raise up children of Abraham from whatever he wants. That's nothing. If you want to be children of Abraham, you must repent and be baptized. So he's proclaiming this message that says to them, in effect, your Jewishness means nothing. Your ethnic heritage means nothing. The fact that you were born in Palestine, the fact that you were born into the Jewish ethnicity means Zippo. You must have a change of heart and you must evidence that in your repentance as symbolized by your baptism. What an incredible message for John to proclaim to the people that you must be baptized, that your Jewishness doesn't save you, your Jewishness places you in no different standing with God than the one who is a non-Jew, right? Remember, baptism was for Gentiles. So in essence, John is saying, you're in the same position as Gentiles. Both of you need a change of heart in order to be God's people. So your Jewishness doesn't help you, but on the other hand, your Gentileness doesn't hurt you. Your, your Jewishness is of no advantage, but your Gentileness is of no disadvantage. Because remember who, who, John, who uh, Luke is writing to. He's writing to Theophilus, who is a Gentile himself, a, a Roman, a Gentile. And John is beginning to paint this picture. He's beginning to paint this, big, this larger theme. It's the theme of God's salvation for all nations, for all people. And we've seen it already, but here we see it in the proclamation of the message of baptism, repentance for, for the Jew and for the non-Jew. You're all the same. Theophilus is just the same. God welcomes you as His child. You must repent and symbolize this in your baptism. There's two other things that Luke gives us here, two other clues that lets us know that Luke is building this theme, the theme of salvation for all people, for all nations. And the first one comes in the quote. We see the quote here from Isaiah chapter 40. It's a, it's a quote that all three of the synoptic Gospels see the connection between what Isaiah says and the coming of John the Baptist. We're familiar with it from Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. All, all three of the Synoptic Gospels include that quotation from Isaiah's, uh, from Isaiah's scroll there, and they connect it together with John the Baptist. And we see here the themes of, of humility, of repentance. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The picture there of repenting, of, of humility. We see the preparing uh, of, of the Messiah to come. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. <clears throat> it speaks there of removing the hindrances to the Messiah, uh, removing the hindrances in people's hearts, uh, removing the obstacles to faith, uh, make straight the, the path of the Lord, the ways of the Lord. Isaiah says that the one who comes before Messiah, he will make straight the path of the Lord. So we see that also. But then what we also see is verse 6. Matthew and Mark include the quotation of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 and 4. 
But only Luke includes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, which is our verse 6 right here. It says this, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, in my mind, Luke is writing this out, and clearly this prophecy from Isaiah is connected to John the baptizer, and Luke is writing this out, and he says, Oh, oh, and and I've got to include that next line. Matthew and Mark didn't. But Luke says, I've got to include that next line because it's so key to what Messiah is here to do. He's the salvation of the nations. Even the Jews must repent and be baptized to be his people. And Messiah is coming. He's the salvation of the nations. It's not as though Matthew and Mark don't believe that and they're not teaching that, but it is as though Luke has a specific intention to show Messiah is the Messiah of the nations. And he includes this extra line from Isaiah's scroll. And so that's another thing. A third thing that we see, and you don't see this in your English translation, but if you were to look at verse 6, you would see all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that you would see that that word salvation is not the normal word that's used to translate uh, translated to salvation, but instead it's a, it's a much rarer word for salvation that's only used three times. It's used by Luke here. And it's used by Luke at the beginning of his gospel in chapter 2. These are the words of Simeon when he sees the baby Jesus. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. There's that special word again. Your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And then, fast forward all the way to the end of Luke's second book, Acts, and we see that same word for the third and final time. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Three times that word is used. All three times, it's specifically in connection to the salvation of the nations, of the Messiah who is the Messiah for all peoples. Clearly, I think, what Luke is trying to convey to Theophilus is Jesus was a Jew, but that doesn't matter. He is Messiah for all people, for me, a fellow Gentile, and for you as well. So we see this is his, uh, is his message here. He's building this theme. He bookends his two books with this a particular word to convey this meaning. So the point so far is your Jewishness is of no help and your Gentileness is of no hindrance because Messiah is Messiah for all people. Now, quickly, let's take a, just a quick look at John's message. So we're going to get a, just, a, just through verse 9, we're going to get a brief start on what John's message was. And, uh, and of course, whenever we are reading in Scripture that, that, we're said, that we're told that this was what John preached and we get like two sentences, of course, that doesn't mean that John preach two sentences. It, it, this is a summary of sort of a larger message that was his message to people. And Luke summarizes it for us in a few sentences here. But from verse 7 we read this. He, John, said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And um, he's going to go on from there to give some specific examples of what he means by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. But we'll stop at verse 9 today. And I want to just look briefly at four things that John says to his audience here. Four things that he's going to say. First of all, he says from verse 7, You brood of vipers. I've always sort of marveled at that. You brood of vipers. (laughs) Okay. Not exactly what John would probably learn if he went to a preaching class today. I I don't think that they would teach him to begin your message by calling your audience a brood of vipers. Not exactly, maybe seeker sensitive, but uh, in any case, let's think about brood of vipers. What do you think about with that term? And what 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's calling these people, you brood of vipers. Now, what's a brood? Yeah, they're family. They're the children, right? Remember, as a kid on the farm, you know, you'd see the, the brood hen and you'd see the little brood of chicks that would follow the hen everywhere she went, right? That was her brood. It was her heritage. It was her children. All right, I go to the grocery store and people see me with my broom, right? That's your family. And so he calls them a brood of viper. He's, he's calling them children of a serpent. Now, our minds go back to Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking to Lucifer. Perhaps he answers that for you when Jesus later on says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. So we see, and there's other places we could look. In fact, just that Acts 13 that we just looked at where Paul says to Elimas, you son of the devil. We see this idea that those who are not Christ followers, they are the brood of, they are the children of the serpent, of the viper, of Satan, of the devil. So here's John beginning his message. You children of the devil. It would be like, you know, you go to church and a guest, a guest pastor stands there. You got a guest speaker for the day. And he says, good morning, children of Satan. <laughs> oh, and by the way, all of you need to repent and be baptized. Can you imagine? That's what he's saying. So All of you need to repent and be baptized. But it wasn't just like when Jesus talks later and calls the... Yeah, I mean, it's he said, therefore, to the crowds. John's not having a dialogue here. He's having a monologue with the crowds. You brood of... You children of Satan... You must repent and be baptized. So imagine someone standing up to preach in church and, and he says, uh, you children of Satan, all of you must be saved. <laughs> and, and, you, and maybe that resonates with some people. But then can you imagine? the? He doesn't know me. He doesn't know. Who, does this young man, does he know that I've been in this church since 1957? And does he know that, that my husband's a deacon and my son is a Sunday school teacher and he doesn't know me. Do not say to me that we have, that you have Abraham as your father. Who cares who your father is? You must repent and be baptized. What a message. What a, what a, a message for, for any group of people to receive. He begins by speaking to them of the deplorable spiritual condition of their hearts, of the horrid spiritual condition of their hearts. But then secondly, he also speaks to them of the coming wrath of God. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So he says there is wrath that is coming, that this wrath is coming. There's coming a time, if you look down to verse 17, later on he's going to sort of flesh this out. He's speaking of the Messiah. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. How unfortunate it is that we as a society have progressed beyond having a real knowledge, a real working knowledge of threshing wheat. I've never threshed wheat. I don't know if anybody here ever has. I know how it's done. I understand it in concept. I've never done it. But how unfortunate. Because it is such a remarkable analogy and a remarkable illustration of working, investing. The, the wheat farmer would invest everything he had in the crop. And if you know anything about substance, subs, subsistence farmers, help me out. Sub, sub, subsistence farmers, if you know anything about subsistence farmers, then, I mean, every year it was, it was laying on the line everything. And if crops failed, you failed. So investing everything you've got in this crop, you work, you tend the soil, the crop grows, it comes up, you harvest the crop, and then the crop is mixed together with worthless stuff. And you've got to separate the worthlessness 
from that which has real value. And that's a tremendous picture of the wrath of God to come. It's a separating of, of that which is worthless from that which has true value. And so as you thresh the wheat, as you probably know, you, you take the wheat and you throw it in the air. The windier the better because then the chaff, the, the light, uh, almost weightless hull of the wheat is blown away in the wind and the heavier kernel falls to the ground for you to collect. It's a tremendous picture for us. So the wrath of God is to come. And then thirdly, he says that this wrath is, in, is not inescapable. He says, who warned you to flee from this wrath? So the, so the wrath is escapable. A, a changing of path, a changing of heart means that the wrath of God is, in, is not inescapable. It can be escaped. You ever hear your non-believing friends talk in ways as though this wrath of God, if there is such a thing, there's nothing I can do about it. You, you, ever, you know people that sort of think that they are unbelievers and they're happy in their unbelief. The, the Holy Spirit is not necessarily softening their hearts. They're content in their non-belief. And, and they'll say things like, you know, I'm just, I, I'm just I'm going to hell and I'm just going to enjoy it while I'm here. And they think of the wrath of God as though it's a settled thing. The wrath of God is never in Scripture presented as something that cannot be escaped in the sense of the wrath of God on a specific person or a specific group of people. The wrath of God is coming to all sinful flesh, and that cannot be avoided. However, God never presents in Scripture the idea of His wrath that is inescapable for a particular person or a particular group of people. Even to the Israelites, as, as they are uh, looking out across the walls of Jerusalem and seeing the Babylonian army, even then, the wrath of God is, is escapable. So, John says that this wrath that is coming, it is something that can be escaped. But then, lastly, I know that we don't think of John the baptizer as necessarily a, a preacher of hope, but look at the hope that he gives them. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, what he says to them, you are children of Satan. You must repent and be baptized in order to escape the coming wrath of God. But let me give you tremendous, tremendous hope. And the hope is this. Why are you here? Why are you here? You're here listening to this because God is active in your heart. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Answer, God. You know, John is not preaching in the temple portico. Jesus would often teach at the temple. The temple was, a, was the center of activity in Jewish life. People were constantly coming and going. And so that's where Jesus would go and teach. John didn't do that. He's in the wilderness Matthew and Mark call it the desert. In other words, you have to stop what you're doing, leave your work or, or your family, whatever's going on. You, you have to stop and you have to go to John to hear him. And he says to them, the fact that you are here is evidence that God is active in your heart. He has warned you of the wrath to come. And somehow he has brought you here. Just like Jesus will say, no one comes to me. As the Father draws them to me. You know, oftentimes, I think of the counseling setting that, that I am privileged sometimes to interact in. And we think of biblical counseling, you, th you think, you know, nobody comes to counseling. No, no Christians come to counseling because uh, you've just been struggling with coveting your neighbor's stuff and you just want some help. To... No. The only people that come to Christian counseling are people that the wheels of life have fallen off. And you're at the end of your rope, and you don't know anything else to do, so you are willing to go sit down with a stranger and tell him your most intimate stories. And that can seem like such a hopeless time. But one of the things that I always try to communicate is because you are here, God is active. And there is nothing that I can say to you that will give you more hope than that. If God was not active, 
You wouldn't be here. If God was not active in your life, you wouldn't be here this morning. What, what an incredible encouragement for you. I don't know everybody's heart necessarily. I don't, I don't, you may be in relationship with God, you, you may, but whatever the case, be assured of one thing. You were only here this morning because either you're trying to impress a girl or I don't, I don't think anybody's here for that reason this morning. Or God is active in your heart. And there is there is nothing that is of greater hope than what John says to them. Who warned you? You're here because God is working in your heart. So those are, are some of the four things that he has to say. But then he goes on to say that you must repent, be baptized, but also you need to stop bearing fruit of vipers and you need to start bearing fruit of God's children. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children. Just one brief note about that. Don't ever let, let yourself fall into the trap of backing God into a corner with His own promises. Don't ever think that you can box God into a corner and use His promises to do it. That sort of thinking is very, very prevalent among, you know, like prosperity gospel preachers. Okay? God promised it. Claim it. Claim His promise. Right? That's not exactly what God's saying. Can we absolutely ground our lives on God's promises? Yes. However, God never handcuffs Himself with His own promises to allow people to live as they want and call upon His blessings whenever they like. That's what they're trying to do. Don't say that you've got Abraham as your father. In other words, don't claim the promises that God made to Abraham and his children as sort of an umbrella that's going to cover over your unrighteous life now. Which is either doing or, or John's going to say, don't even think about doing that. So turn on your TV to the prosperity gospels. Joyce, Joyce Meyer is, I think, particularly bad about this, but all of them are the same. Is They will paint a picture that says, you, you can manipulate God with His own promises. No, you cannot. God's promises are utterly reliable. But that's not the same thing as saying that you can back Him into a corner with what He says. So a brief note about that, but then let me just finish by saying bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What, what does that mean? Bear fruits with keeping and repentance. Obviously, the fruit, fruit um, think of fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Right? Those are the things that John's going to say, these should be the evidences of your life, the fruit of the Spirit. So we think about the fruit of the Spirit, and we say, does my life bear that, that sort of thing? We can get very confused when we look at what Scripture will say about good fruit and fruit of the Spirit and, and say, Whose life bears that? And so therefore, that must be fruit of the Spirit. And the reason that can get confusing is because can unbelievers' lives manifest fruit of the same nature? Yeah, in fact, oftentimes unbelievers' lives seem to manifest fruit of the Spirit better than mine. And so, you know, you think about people, you think about Gandhi. His life was a life that sure manifested peace. Well, he was as lost as the day was long. How do we process this whole fruit of the Spirit thing? And I think that one, one key for us is how, how John will say, and Jesus will say the same thing, bear fruit. The axe is at the, at the root of the bad tree. Don't be the bad tree, be the good tree. Or Jesus will say, the bad tree doesn't bear bad fruit. The good tree doesn't, or the bad tree doesn't bear good fruit, vice versa. So, what does a fruit tree do to bear fruit? Does a fruit tree 
concentrate? Or does a fruit tree try to produce fruit? Have you ever heard of two peach trees talking to each other and one says, you know, Ethel, you just you just need to concentrate more on producing peaches or they're going to chop you down next year and plant a new... You just need to focus on your peaches. Fruit trees produce fruit because that's what they do. They can do nothing else because that's who they are. And so when you think of fruit of the Spirit, is that what my life does when I let my foot off the gas? When I sort of let go of the steering wheel? Where does my life drift if I sort of let it go? Does my life drift towards righteousness? Or does my life drift towards unrighteousness? Does it drift towards fruit of the viper? Or does it drift towards fruit of the Spirit? Now be careful with that. Because all of us, we're still fallen. And all of us will, in many ways, drift towards unrighteousness. But if all of the fruit of the Spirit in your life is only present because you make yourself do it, then I would suggest that that's not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Instead, that's bearing fruit that's not keeping in repentance. So as we ask ourselves, well, okay, what if, it, it, metaphorically speaking, I take my foot off the gas, off the accelerator of my life, and just let it coast, what will happen? Will my life be, be a life of peace, joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? And if you're honest, I think you'll say with me, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think if I take my hands off the wheel, <clears throat> spiritually speaking, then I'm going to go in the ditch. And I think that's the whole point. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so as we think, okay, what is the natural fruit of my life? The natural fruit of my life is fruit of the viper. And so repent. Drive me to that repentance. Drive me into that life of constant repentance. He says the life of the Christian should be one of constant, lifelong repentance. And I think that's the whole point. The whole point is not, okay, yeah, I had that repentance and baptism of repentance thing, and great, now my life bears the fruit of this. No. You let up spiritually, and your life will not. And so therefore, repent. Repent and receive forgiveness of that. I think that's the best hope. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.